really get a a view into the future of of what it will be like for eternity with God, it, which is uh, can be very overwhelming to say say the least. We obviously in this uh, portion of the book find ourselves in the midst of the tribulation period that's in the future. However, there, as we have seen, are breaks in the action of the book of Revelation where we get to see, uh, kind of have some relief from the terrible things that will be taking place on the earth and see what, what the, the extended future has in store for us, which is, uh, which is a, welcome, a welcome relief from some of the things that we have seen already that will take place in the, in the future seven-year tribulation period. It's, a, it's very important in, the, in a study of the book of Revelation to kind of understand the flow of the book, understand that, that, it isn't, that this isn't in large part new, totally new information that we're getting in the book of Revelation. Really, it is an expansion on a lot of things that have already been talked about in the Old Testament uh, period in particular, and even some things in the New Testament, like Matthew chapter 24 and some other places in the Bible, Second uh, Thessalonians for one. And in the book of Revelation, we get a more complete picture about what is going to take place on the earth before Jesus Christ comes again to establish his kingdom on the earth. And the, the layout of the book makes that pretty clear. Uh, Revelation one nineteen being a good verse to go to to outline the book. Jesus tells John to write about the things which you have seen. That was, we saw chapter one, the vision of the risen Christ. He's the one delivering this message. So we ought to pay attention to it is kind of the, the reason for that. Uh, Revelation one nineteen says, John was to write about the things which are, that's chapters two and three, messages to churches. These were contemporary churches with John, first century churches, messages to them that very much apply to us today because we're still living in the church age. We saw we have a lot of the same uh, problems in our, in our churches today. In our own spiritual lives, we can have a lot of these uh, problems. And as believers, we have the same promises that these people had, a uh, future with God and these kinds of things. We are, we are overcomers because Jesus Christ overcame the world. This is one of the main themes of chapters 2 and 3. We're overcomers because we have faith in Christ who overcame the world, so uh, walk by faith in the promises of God. Uh, over, overarching message of the chapters 2 and 3, messages to the churches. And then John was to write about the things which take place after these things. Just very, very clear language that after these things, after the churches uh, exist, some other events are going to take place. And that is this seven-year tribulation period that's covered uh, in chapters 6 through 19. 
the part that we are studying now. And let's not forget chapters 4 and 5 because that's important for us too uh, in these to understand these future events and why they're happening and who is the one who is pouring out these these judgments upon the earth and we saw that it is it is Jesus Christ himself. He is the he is the only uh, being who is qualified to open this scroll that contains the judgments that are being poured out on the earth and and the the slain lamb Jesus Christ is the one who is, breaks the first second, third, and so on, seal. All of this is God's wrath being poured out on the earth for a very specific purpose so that God can fulfill his covenantal promises to the nation of Israel. That's one thing that we've noticed even really beginning here in chapter 7 is how this book really takes a turn towards having very Jewish language here in, in moving forward, specifically mentioning uh, the sons of Israel and the 12 tribes and the temple and all of these kinds of things that are very Jewish that we didn't see back here in chapters 2 and 3. There was no mention of anything remotely close to that in the messages to the churches. But now... Moving forward, we see Israel uh, starting to have uh, a come to the focus, if you will, have more of a part in this future seven-year period that began, tribulation period that began in chapter six, where we saw the sealed judgments. We we call them we call them the sealed judgments because every time that Jesus breaks a seal on the scroll, some particular judgment takes place on the earth. And so we spent a lot of time going through all of these. It begins with peace, we saw, and then war, famine, death, martyrs, uh, and then all of these incredible signs of earthquakes, stars falling to the earth, the sun being darkened, the moon uh, looking as if it's turning to blood and these kinds of incredible judgments that are taking place. None of these things are happening today. This is not the uh, Russia and Ukraine war is not uh, the second seal or the fourth seal or other things that you will here, uh, I've seen in the last two years that, oh, this we're living in the fourth seal. COVID is uh, the, the disease that's mentioned in the fourth seal and these kinds of things. None of that is the case. Uh, first of all, we're still here, so we know that isn't, that isn't the case. Second of all, this person, the Antichrist, has not been revealed to the world. It is not uh, even remotely clear who that person is at this point in time. Could he be on the earth? Uh, Certainly, certainly he could be. Uh, Do we know who he is today? Uh, Absolutely not. Nobody does. Uh, Whoever is uh, saying Something contrary to that is is not being honest with you when it when it comes down to it. We really do not know who this person is at this point, and that is the the event that begins the tribulational period, according to the this first seal 
being broken. Second Thessalonians chapter two makes very clear that the church, well, it makes clear that the restraining influence will be removed before the, this antichrist is revealed to the world. That has to happen. Whatever that restraining influence is, according to Second Thessalonians 2, has to be removed from the earth before the Antichrist can be uh, come to center stage, come to uh, existence in the world. And when we studied Second Thessalonians, we looked at all of the various positions as to what that is, and we came to the conclusion that that's the Holy Spirit. The restraining influence in the world today is the Holy Spirit who indwells each one of us as believers in Christ, members of the church, and therefore that will be removed, that influence will be removed before the Antichrist comes. So we're still here. These events aren't taking place. Uh, To go to Matthew 24, Just for an example, we are not seeing today kingdoms against kingdoms and nations against nations and wars and rumors of wars and these kinds of things that Jesus mentions in Matthew 24 are all contained in these seven seal judgments. They are not happening today. Jesus is describing the future tribulation period which begins in the book of Revelation in Revelation chapter 6, and we are not there. The tribulation begins with seal number one and the pseudo-peace of the Antichrist coming into the world. Uh, And we find ourselves in a gap here between seal number six and seal number seven, one of these breaks in the action where we get to see, in this case, some things in the future from what, we're, what has transpired so far here, and a, and a look into what is actually going to take place after these things. And chapter, chapter 6 ends with a question, if you'll remember, who is able to stand in the midst of these judgments? Chapter 7 answers that question. Four angels are... Uh, introduced in the first three verses. And then we see in verses four through eight, these 144,000, we called them Jewish witnesses. We, we are assured that they are Jewish because they are called the sons of Israel. And, the, and they are from 12 tribes, 12,000 individuals from 12 tribes. And this is a, a good indication to us in this that the uh, nation of Israel through these people are going to fulfill God's original intention for the nation of Israel. They were to be a light to the nations according to Isaiah 49 and verse 6 where it says, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Well, during this tribulation period, 
before the trumpet judgments start, these 144,000 Jewish people are going to be, have a seal placed on them, a seal of protection, so that they can go out and be a light to the nations of the world. Now, why in the world would you say that? Well, if we keep reading in Revelation 7, we see why. It says in verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, realize he had just counted the 144,000. He could count them. That was an actual number of actual people from an actual country. No other reason to, to uh, no reason to think anything different than that. Here, this great multitude, which no one could count, notice where they come from, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation uh, belongs to our God or is from our God, we saw last week, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then there was this, the, the angels and all the beings around the throne, they all worship uh, the Lamb. And verse 14, then one of the elders if you'll remember, ask John, do you, do you know who this great multitude is? Uh, no, I really don't, but you do, so why don't you tell me? Verse 14, I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white by means of the blood of the Lamb, we saw last time. These are ones who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins during this tribulation period, most likely because of the witness of these 144,000 Jewish people who were servants for God during the tribulation period. That, that's a, a, a pretty safe biblical conclusion to come to as to who these people are, this great multitude, which no one could count from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, standing uh, before the Lamb, standing before the throne. A, good, a, a clear indication that God's purposes in this world do not fail. Even though he made this statement about the Israel being a light to the world, Way back in Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, you read the rest of the New Testament, they do a pretty bad job of that, actually. From the time of Isaiah moving forward, they're very involved in idolatry, uh, disobedient to God. This, the, the Messiah comes to them and they reject him. Uh, they were not a light to the nations in any way, shape, or form, really other than Jesus Christ and these few uh, apostles that we read about who went out and were a light. But this, this in Revelation is 144,000 witnesses going out into the world in this great multitude trusts in Christ because of, because of their witness for him. God's purposes certainly do not fail. His word certainly does not return to him void, as it says in uh, 
Isaiah 55 and verse 11. So that brings us to today, verses 15 through 17, the reward of faith. We will have the setting, the service, and the supply, this incredible supply of blessing that these people will enjoy. Notice Revelation 7, verse 15, it says, For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat, for the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We begin with the setting this morning. Notice again, Revelation 7, 15, for this reason they are before the throne of God. This is uh, something that we try to emphasize here at Flushing Bible Church. The reason why these people can stand before the living God. Notice that there is one reason. It says uh, dia tauto is the, is the Greek term. And it, it, the dia means through or because of this singular very, very important thing. There's not a group of reasons why these people can stand before the throne. There is one reason why they can stand before the throne. One single reason, and that single reason is the fact that the God-man, the eternal God the Son, came out of heaven, came out of eternity, took on human flesh, the incarnation we call it, and was born of a virgin on this earth, lived a perfect life and gave his life, shed his blood, as it says there in verse 14, because of his blood or by means of his blood, these people are able to have eternal life because there is one way and one way only that people can be made right with God. And that is found in John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Every other religion in the world and those who have the coexist bumper stickers and all of these kinds of things. They have it completely wrong. There are not many paths that lead to the creator of the universe. There is one path, one door, one way to God the Father, and it is through God the Son, Jesus Christ. And it is through faith in him because he shed his blood As we uh, saw last week and have seen a hundred times before, we are all as human beings separated from God because of our sin. We die physically because of our sin. It has has a, a, a physical effect on us. And it's very easy to see that in uh, various uh, places. It, uh, for example, we drink too much alcohol and we ruin our internal organs and our brain and it eventually can cause us to die. Uh, that obviously 
is a sin. We can get all kinds of diseases from acting uh, immorally in this world, can bring disease to us that results in our death. Uh, we can, people, the, the, the examples are endless of how sin can cause us to physically die either quickly or over an extended period of time. We also die spiritually. We are also separated from God because of our sin. He is holy and righteous and perfect and without sin. And we are separated from him because of his sin. And in God's eternal purposes and in his eternal plan, he has determined that Jesus Christ, God the Son, would shed his blood as a, as a substitute, we'll see here shortly, for our sins. And if we trust in that, we believe in that, in his shed blood, he will give us his righteousness. That's his plan. It's not my plan or uh, Flushing Bible Church's plan or the Baptist plan or any other person's plan. It's God's plan. It's revealed to us in his word. And if we trust in that, he will give us his righteousness. And that's the only way it can take place. All of our good works and attempts to, to uh, placate our, our guilty consciences or to make up for our sins and all of these kinds of things are without effect when it comes to, to this, being made right with God. All of that is considered as filthy rags, the Bible says, because only the shed blood of Jesus Christ can make us right with him. Uh, Jesus said in Luke twenty-two twenty, and in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten uh, the, the final Passover meal. Jesus said, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We will celebrate that later on after the, after the service this morning, this new covenant. Well, the, the Bible defines what the new covenant is. We don't just make it up. We learned about it in Sunday school this morning. It's a covenant God made with Israel to, uh, so that their sins could be forgiven. God in his grace offers that to you and me, that we can have our sins forgiven, whether we are uh, Jewish or Gentile, whoever we are, by trusting in the shed blood of Christ, we can be made right with him. And this is the only way to be made right with him. In order to be in this place before the throne, they need these people must have righteousness. Uh, and that is granted to them through the shed blood of Christ. Sinners must trust in Christ's shed blood. Uh, the Greek term that we see in the Bible for that idea is pistuo, sometimes translated as believe, sometimes uh, trust or faith. All of these words mean exactly the same thing. The, one, of the, one of the problems of, that people run into in the world is a misunderstanding of this term faith, where they, when they read faith, they think religion, uh, you know, Protestant, Catholic, Episcopalian, 
well, he's of the Muslim faith or the Jewish faith. Well, that's, that's not really what the word means in the Bible. The word faith in the Bible means to believe in or trust in, put your faith in uh, someone or something. And the Bible makes very clear that in order to have the forgiveness of sins or salvation, we have to believe in, trust in Jesus Christ's death on our behalf. John 1, 12 says, But as many as received him, Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He gave uh, gave them the right to be the children of God because they believe in his name, not they believe and did a whole bunch of good works or not they got their act together, then they believed in him, then he gave them the right to be the children of God. No, there's one condition there. Those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, later on, Jesus will uh, give us more information of what it means to not be born of blood. That's just to be born a, a human. We need to be born again, born spiritually. Jesus will describe in, in John chapter 3, and this is, this is the will of God. This is how God has determined that people will be saved. Jesus will die on the cross, shed his blood for their sins. You can have forgiveness if you trust in that. And that's, that's it. That's the one condition, whether or not you have trusted in Christ. Belief, faith, trust in is the issue. Jesus says in John 3, 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. One condition there, belief, trust in. Then John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Again, one condition, belief. He expands on that in John 3.17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Yeah, sometimes I think I repeat myself too much. Uh, the Bible here is repeating itself over and over. Believe. If you don't believe, you'll be condemned. If you do believe, you'll have eternal life. It really cannot be any more clear. Verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. We must believe in the only begotten Son of God in order to have eternal life. And if we do not believe, we will not have life. These people, obviously, in Revelation chapter 7, believed in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. 
And that is why they are there. They have righteousness. We talked about uh, this last week also, but I wanted to put it on the slide this time instead of just saying it off the top of my head. They, they have uh, righteousness imputed to them. Some of these theological terms are, they're, they're important to, to understand what they mean. So this righteousness is credited to them. It's given to them. Sometimes we see this term imputation. It's imputed to them, credited to them is what it means. And it is given on one condition, faith in Christ. The Bible is very clear. Romans chapter 4 and verse 1. And this isn't just a New Testament thing. Genesis 15, 6 says that righteousness was credited to Abraham because he believed. That's why he had righteousness, because he trusted in God's plan and program for his sin. So he had uh, righteousness given to him. He had faith. Romans 4.1, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness or imputed to him as righteousness. Romans 4.4, 4, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Faith to the exclusion of works gives us righteousness. The, the reason why uh, works aren't included in it is because our faith needs to be completely in Christ. Not mostly in Christ and in his shed blood, but I'm going to do these good works just in case Jesus's shed blood isn't enough. No, it's, it is completely dependent upon Jesus Christ. That's how we have righteousness credited to us. And, uh, these people are before the throne because the sacrifice of Jesus Christ uh, stands in our place. It is a substitutionary death. We are supposed to die because of our sins, but Christ died on our behalf as our substitute. He took our place, took the punishment that we deserve upon himself, and this sacrifice satisfies God the Father. That's the idea of propitiation. And he did this, Jesus did this not for a subset of the world, not for an exclusive group of people in the world, but he did it for the entire world. That's why any person can trust in Christ. 1 John 2.2, and he himself, speaking of Christ, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. His, the the uh, perfect, eternal blood of God the Son paid for in entirety the sins of the world. So we can, with a very clear conscience, go to the worst sinner we know, whoever that is in our lives, and we can with confidence tell them 
that Jesus Christ died for their sins and you can have forgiveness for whatever this horrible sin is in your life because God the Son paid for it on the cross and the Bible tells us that Jesus died for your sin, whoever, whoever you are. Even Vladimir Putin could be in heaven if he would trust in Christ, believe it or not. We'll definitely get canceled from YouTube for that one. But Jesus Christ shed blood, paid for the sins of the entire world. Anybody can trust in him. And when you do, when you do, you will be regenerated. You will be born again is what, how the Bible uh, states that your, your spiritual life will be regenerated to you. There will no longer be that barrier of sin between you and a holy God. You will be given new life. And this, this is something that happens after we believe, not before. There's a, a segment of theology that teaches this idea that we have to essentially be born again so that we can believe. That's not what the Bible tells us. Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, after, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Uh, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit after we hear the message, after we believe, then we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, but whenever, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. When you turn to the Lord and trust in him, uh, the, the, the veil of unbelief is removed and the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates you, renews your life, gives you spiritual life. That's what it means to be born again. And that happens after you believe. That's why the witnesses have to go out, these Jewish witnesses have to go out first and then the great multitude is spoken of here in Revelation 7. They had to go out and give them the message first. And this is a, a scene in heaven. Theologians and ver commentaries will give uh, various theories about what this, is, this scene here in Revelation 7 is actually depicting. I, th I think it's a scene in heaven. They're, they are not... On the earth, this is not a, a vision of the kingdom. The kingdom isn't taking place yet. Uh, it very clearly says that they, are, that they are in heaven before the throne, this scene of worship, verses uh, uh, 11 and 12. They're worshiping at the throne. These people are not on the earth right now. Uh, although... At one point in the future, after Christ comes and establishes his kingdom, we uh, will rule and reign with Christ on the earth, Revelation 5.10. We will be a kingdom of priests to him upon, and will reign with him upon the earth. Revelation 20 and verse 4 says that those who believe and come out of the tribulation will also 
rule with Christ on the earth for 1,000 years. Revelation 20 in verse 4. Again, this is uh, one of those breaks in the action, Revelation 7, allowing us to look forward at the fact that people are going to hear the gospel come out of and believe it and come out of the tribulation as saved people. And so next we see that they will serve the living God at this uh, with in their new life. We have the service. Notice verse 15. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They serve him in his temple here in this scene in heaven. This is a picture we have seen of God. uh, Well, what's called in other places, John 14, for example, the father's house. This is where the father dwells right now on his throne in heaven. This is where God the Father is. And God the Son is there and these angels and these four living beings and this incredible scene is all in heaven. And these people are seen as serving God there day and night. And guess what? We will be there also in the place where the Father dwells, the Father's house. We too will be taken there. John 14, Jesus made this promise in the upper room discourse to his uh, disciples, to the believing apostles, if you will. Judas had already left by this point in time in the upper room discourse. And then pretty much immediately after Judas leaves, Jesus says, John 14, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Notice that one, there's that word again, believe, that one condition. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also." So when we see uh, the rest of the Gospels play out, Jesus is crucified, he dies, he goes into the grave for three days, he rises again, and then uh, after a period of time, he ascends up into the clouds, the end of Acts, or the end of the book of Luke and the beginning of Acts, Jesus Christ ascends back to the Father's house, very uh, pretty pretty clear since the angels who were there on that day and the beginning of Acts say, oh, why are you looking up there? Just the same way that he left is the same way that he's going to come again. Well, when we put all this information together, John 14, when Jesus says that he's, he's going to leave, but he's going to come again and take us back to where he's going, clearly he's in heaven. We see him. He is the lamb here in the book of Revelation, standing in heaven. Jesus is in heaven right now. Here in John 14, 
He calls this the Father's house, and he's going there to prepare a place for us so that he can come again and take us from here to the Father's house. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's preparing a place for us in heaven right now. He's going to come again and take us from here to there. Revelation 19, when Jesus comes to the earth, describes something very different than that. He's not coming and taking people back to heaven. He's coming and he's uh, eradicating his enemies from the earth at the end of the tribulation period. And then he's establishing his kingdom upon the earth, not in heaven. When we read these uh passages as they're presented on the page, that's the only conclusion that we can come to. So John 14, he's got to be describing something different than coming again to establish his kingdom. He's coming again, taking people from the earth back to the Father's house. That's you and me. And he does that before this tribulation period begins. And we will see this scene unfold that we have here in Revelation chapter 7. And notice that they are before him and they serve him, present tense. This is something that they are doing in this scene and they will do into eternity. But don't, you know, we, we can sometimes get overwhelmed by that and think, you know, oh, man. I mean, this is all we're going to do for eternity. Uh, I don't know that that's uh, exactly the case. It doesn't, it doesn't plainly state that. It does say that this is something that we are going to be about, serving God with our lives uh, for eternity, which I, I don't think we have to be worried about uh, getting bored or wishing we were doing something else. I don't think we fully understand exactly what that is going to entail, but it's not it's not going to be a drag. I can I can assure you, I can assure you of that. Uh, these people are involved. Uh, it would seem in some sort of of priestly service. Uh, the Book of Numbers described that. Early on in the history of the Israelite people, God was making uh, clear to them that they were going to need some uh, place, a tabernacle initially, where they would serve God. And the priests would be the ones who would do this. Numbers 28.3 says, You shall say to them, This is the offering by fire which you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs, one year old, without defect, as a continual burnt offering every day. This was something that they were uh, doing, were to be doing continually. And they had a whole uh, group of people, obviously, the priests, the Levites, who were set aside to carry this uh, type of service out. We also know that these, these uh, things that the Lord was commanding the Israelites to do were just a shadow of what will take place in the future, just a, a, a minuscule foreshadowing of the things that will take place in heaven. 
and that are taking place even now. Hebrews 8, 5, uh, speaking of the, of the tabernacle and the temple and the temple service and these kinds of things, the author of Hebrews says that these serve a, as a, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. And, and this, the, it was a supposed to be a picture of what it's like in heaven, but just, just a mere copy and not one that is in uh, 8K detail. We can be assured of that. It's just a, it's a, to give us a, a physical picture of things that are in heaven that we really can't even imagine how great they are or, or what they will entail. Uh, and so it's not perfectly clear what this service is going to be like. What is perfectly clear is that as believers, again, keep in mind that this is not describing the church here in Revelation 7. These are people coming out of the tribulation who are brought before the throne and do this service. However, we too, as church people, will be there and will also serve the Lord with our lives into eternity. And this is something that will take place after the judgment seat of Christ that we uh, talked about a little bit in Sunday school this morning also. Uh, important to keep the judgment seat of Christ separate, separated from some other judgments that we see people undergoing uh, in the future. But this judgment seat of Christ is for people from the church age who trust in Christ. Uh, Romans 14.10 makes very clear that we all have to do that. Romans 14.10, as believers, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Uh, this, is, this is something that's going to take place after the rapture because we're all going to be there. We all have to undergo this judgment and the most convenient time for that to happen is when we're all in heaven together, and that will be after the rapture. And it is for all believers from the church age. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This is not a punishment, however, uh, this judgment seat of Christ that, that uh, we will undergo. It's not a punishment, but rather it is a, a time of, of reward, if you will. Uh, and we know that, that, that what are termed as carnal believers will make it through to the other side of that judgment. 1 Corinthians uh, 3.15 makes that very clear when Paul is describing this judgment seat of Christ and the fact that all believers will undergo it. 
and if anything, any kind of works that we're, we have done that are done in our own strength for our own uh, uh, wrong motives and these kinds of things, not done in the power of the Holy Spirit for the Lord, but instead done for our own uh, bank accounts, our own egos, our own fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is, uh, those things will be burned up. Things that we've done in the power of the Holy Spirit for Him, for His good, will be rewarded. First uh, Corinthians three fifteen. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So every person who has truly believed in Christ will survive the judgment seat of Christ. It may not be a pleasant experience as we find out all of the things in our lives where we have let down the Lord and have not uh, done things for the proper motives and these sorts of these sorts of things. However, we will all make it through to the other side to be with him in his temple before him, serving him forever. And Second uh, John 8 makes it very clear that this is a time of reward, that he is, he is here, he has his uh, reward with him, ready to come. It is this time that we are living in now is preparation for the kingdom and eternity, Luke 19, 11 through 19. I think I've put this passage on a slide about, I don't know, 10 times <laughs> In our in our serv- in our uh, messages on Revelation, and I'm not sure that we've really talked about it in any detail. Uh, but regardless, it's a parable that Jesus told about giving believers rewards based on their faithfulness in this life. This is he's describing the judgment seat of Christ there, uh, that we will be rewarded based upon our faithfulness. And this judgment seat of Christ, the fact that we face this judgment in the future ought to be motivation for us to live for him today. Uh, Revelation 22 and verse 12 makes that pretty clear. Uh, Revelation 22:12 says, Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. He has a reward ready to give to you based on your your faithfulness to him your walking with him by means of the holy spirit trusting in him relying upon him uh and these various uh confessing our sins to him and these various items that make up walking by means of the spirit uh revelate or luke chapter 19 verses 24 through 26, speaking of uh, motivation for the Christian life. If you remember in that parable, the Lord is, he gives out a amount of money to various people. To, to one, he gives 10. To another, he gives five. To another, he gives one. The one who gets the one just kind of, uh, he doesn't use it. He just hides it. And then when the Lord comes back again, he's like, oh, here's your, here's your gift that you gave to me. The Lord didn't think too much of that. 
Verse 24 of Luke 19, Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him, the one, and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. That's this motivation for the Christian life today. We don't need to scare people into wondering whether or not they're saved. Uh, we ought to be telling people that, they're, that they can be saved by simple faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And because Christ's gift is so incredible, so generous, so amazing, you ought to be motivated to, to serve him and walk with him in this life, knowing that there is a reward for that in the future at the judgment seat of Christ and even into eternity. We have this incredible uh, supply from the Lord that he has in store for us. And this truth ought to motivate us to be faithful to him today. Notice what it says there in uh, the end of verse 15, he will spread his tabernacle over them. Verse 16, they will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down the on them, nor any heat, for the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God the Father will, will spread his tabernacle over them or over us as I have there. Notice the change in uh, tense there. As he's talking about in verse 15, he says that they are before the throne, present tense, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them. All speaking of the future, even further into the future is what the implication is. Here is by using that future tense, he is describing not not uh, what's going on now, but what will take place in the eternal state. Revelation 21 and beginning in verse one describes this, what will what the world, what our existence will be like after the kingdom period ends. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. Uh, this is the the tabernacle of God or the Father's house comes to be the place where we just exist forevermore in God's presence. That's what it means when it says he will spread his tabernacle over us. That that term for tabernacle in the Greek is skinao, and it's very similar to a, a Hebrew word that we that we're probably familiar with, Shekinah. Uh, that the Shekinah glory that the Israelites saw in the Exodus period, well, that, that's the uh, 
a term that means to dwell with. God was dwelling with his people. That same term came to mean uh, our English term tabernacle. Uh, And so the tabernacle is where God dwells. It's where he lives. And this is stating that in the future, God the Father is going to live with his people. He's going to come and tabernacle with us permanently for eternity. And there will be no hunger nor any thirst there. This is something that Americans don't really have a lot of experience with up to this point in time anyway. Uh, but it, it's not that way everywhere in the world. And it, we saw that it won't be that way during the tribulation period, that uh, third seal, there's going to be famine and, and these horrible things are going to take place on the earth in a wide, on a wide scale. We're not going to have to worry about that anymore. Those physical needs will be provided for. The, the Old Testament makes a lot of promises to the nation of Israel about that. That's just two verses, Isaiah 55 and Joel chapter 2, talking about God providing for the needs of the Israelite people physically. Well, Jesus proved he could do that by feeding the 5,000, turning water into wine, all these kinds of miracles that Jesus did proved that he is the one who can take care physically of our hunger and our thirst. But of course, he's also provides for us spiritually. These, these feeding of the 5,000 and these various miracles were really spiritual lessons for us also, that he is eternal life. Uh, we can have these springs of eternal life uh, come up from trusting in Jesus Christ, that he is the bread of life. That's what we'll celebrate here shortly. By believing in him, we can have life. We won't suffer in the heat anymore. We're not really suffering in the heat this time of year here in Michigan, but uh, people in in Israel and desert cultures, they definitely suffer in the heat. That's not going to be an issue anymore. Genesis 3.8 indicates that God used to meet with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day. Just thought that was kind of, kind of an interesting thing to note. But we're not going to suffer in the heat anymore in eternity. Isaiah 49.10, they will not hunger nor thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. I will make all my mountains a road and my highways will be raised up. Behold, these will come from afar and lo, these will come from the north and from the west and from the land of Sinem. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on the afflicted. There's not going to be any sun in this eternal state because God will be there. There will be enough light from God to, to light all of existence, Revelation 22.5 tells us. And Jesus Christ is going to be our shepherd. That's why we read John 10 verses 1 through 18, the, the good shepherd discourse, Jesus describing that he is 
our shepherd. We can experience eternal life through trusting in him. This isn't just a New Testament truth. Something uh, dramatic did happen in Christ coming into the world, but in terms of the scriptures, uh, it's just a fulfillment of what God had promised that he would do. Uh, Psalm 23 being uh, one of those instances. And there will be no sorrow in this eternal existence that we have to look forward to. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Again, another uh, Old Testament statement that we find fulfillment, Isaiah 25, 8, that we find fulfilled here in the book of Revelation. So this is our future. This is the the reward of faith that we see doled out to these individuals here in the book of Revelation, this group that comes out of the tribulation by trusting in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Their reward is not just very similar to our reward, but it's the same reward. We too have this to look forward to in the future. Praise God for that. We will be in heaven with him by means of the shed blood of the lamb. That is the only reason why we will be there. It's nothing that we do as ourselves. It was completely accomplished in Christ and his shed blood. We can be there by trusting in him. We will have the privilege to serve him forever as he gives us this incredible supply of every possible physical need, every possible spiritual need being taken care of as we live in the presence of the living God for eternity. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the book of Revelation and these this ancient text that has uh, truths in it that are so relevant for us today. I pray that, that we as your people would uh, look to these truths and have our minds turned to eternity, that we could uh, not be overwhelmed by the circumstances that we face in this life, but we would see that, that our lives in this world pale in comparison to eternity with you, something that we really can't even comprehend. But I just pray, Lord, that you would uh, give us this kind of focus in our lives, give us this kind of of meaning in our lives, that we would know that that uh, this life that can seem as if it's full of drudgery is really just preparing us to to be with you for eternity. And I pray that that you would go with us as we live our lives each day, that you would encourage us, that you would uh, build us up in the truths of your word, and that we would be grateful for these things, that we wouldn't take them for granted, but we would uh, be thankful and grateful for this incredible future that we have with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.